Chris and every team member. Thank you so much. We are blessed each Sunday, aren't we? And speaking of the resurrection, uh, listen to this uh, verse about the resurrection. This is in Romans chapter 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He is the resurrection and the life. He has power over the grave. I love that phrase, uh, the, the, the tomb that was borrowed for three days. And the Lord has robbed the grave. Amen. Amen. What a great God we serve. Uh, you are turning uh, in your Bibles now to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is in the Old Testament. Uh, you're going to want to look for where that's at uh, in your index if you're not uh, familiar with Zephaniah. Uh, this is our second week. Last week uh, was the uh, preface to this book, a great book. We're in a series on uh, the minor prophets called uh, Minor to Majors, uh, Major Changes from the Minor Prophets. Uh, and uh, we want to uh, extend a special greeting certainly to Pastor Tim, who is in India watching live. We greet you, brother, uh, and uh, thank you for preaching the word this morning where you were at. Uh, we also want to uh, welcome all those who are joining us live via simulcast, including our church in Bel Air, Pastor Bob and folks. We welcome you also. I look forward to seeing you later today uh, at the party. So I will be there with you and also to all. A special um, announcement, a special greeting, uh, a, a new birth, uh, Pastor Christian and Megan had a baby. Uh, baby boy. Uh, and in spite of my offer last week of $250, for the name of Zephaniah, they chose the name of another prophet, Jonah. Uh, so Jonah Percy is uh, their boy's name. We welcome Jonah into the world uh, with Christian and Megan. They are full of joy. Uh, so thank you for that. <laughs> Zephaniah, um, before we get into the book of Zephaniah, I saw a tweet uh, this week from a college professor, seminary professor of mine. I had a, I had a good chuckle about uh, this one. Uh, here is the tweet. Uh, he went to church in Grand Rapids someplace, uh, and he said this, the preacher wore skinny jeans with untucked shirt, held coffee cup as he read the text from his phone. I refused. He's hashtag not my precedent. That's what he said. <laughs> I, got a hold of, I got a hold of Dr. Whitmer. I said, uh, was, uh, are you referring to my sermon on Zephaniah? That's what I said. And, uh, and he said, no, the preacher I'm talking about doesn't even know Zephaniah exists. Uh, and um, listen, no matter how you preach, uh, and, and that's okay, fine, if you want to wear skinny jeans, although I recommend not, okay? Uh, but if you want to wear skinny jeans and untucked shirt, that's fine. Uh, however, uh, Zephaniah, especially chapter 1, is not, it's not, let me repeat, it's not a passage to be taken lightly. It's hard to preach this chapter, especially with a coffee cup in your hand and text from your phone. Uh, this is a passage of Scripture. Uh, I would call Zephaniah a tale of two themes, a tale of two themes. Chapter 1 could arguably be called uh, the, the, the biggest fireworks of God's judgment in the Scripture, okay? So chapter 1 is weighty, and that's where we're at today. At the end of the book, Zephaniah chapter 3, which we're not going to get to today, could be called the biggest fireworks of God's grace in all the Scripture. And so here we have Zephaniah who speaks out about God's judgment and also about God's grace, I would liken it to this. If you go to buy a diamond at the store, uh, they will represent and show you the diamond. And in a lot of cases, they will bring out a black cloth and they will lay the black cloth down and they will show you the diamond because a diamond glows all the brighter when it's backdropped against a black cloth. 
And I believe that the more that we understand God's judgment, the more we comprehend the wrath of God, the more we will come to understand and appreciate the brilliance and the magnificence of His grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the importance of Zephaniah in our culture because if we, if we minimize God's, uh, God's wrath against us, if we minimize His judgment, then we will also minimize His grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 is a diamond. This is a beautiful diamond. For God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that, be- isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's awesome, man. That's like, that's like a fundamental uh, biblical verse of memorization that God shows His love that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, followed by says this, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from, does anybody know what that says? From the wrath of God. Now, step back for a moment. What are you saved from? If you are in Christ as Lord, if you are in him, found in him, You are first and foremost not saved from your sin. (laughs) This is powerful. Yes, you're saved from your sin, but not first and foremost. We are first and foremost saved by God from God's wrath. That is weighty. And this is what Zephaniah puts to the forefront in chapter 1. He wants to show us that we are under judgment and under wrath, especially apart from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And later in the sermon, we will come back to the lens of a New Testament covenant. We will come back to the beautiful lens of grace and mercy and love. We're going to get there. But let's first comprehend just how weighty that God's judgment and his wrath are against sin. And as we understand and increase our comprehension of his wrath, the magnificence and the brilliance of the diamond of his mercy and his grace will shine through all the brighter. So let's ask God's uh, presence into this midst. And why don't you ask God to minister to you this morning as well. Father, Uh, On behalf of this congregation, we thank you today that we have the privilege of going to your book. Your book, your word, is truth. And we affirm that and we receive it today. And we pray for everyone here, even those who were drug here, that you would impact our hearts, that you would open up uh, your truth to us, that we may see a glimpse into the world of judgment and wrath, and then from there that we would spring to mercy and we would say, God, shine your face on us. We thank you today for your goodness to us. You are a good God. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And Lord, we pray now that you would open up our hearts to your word. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Point number one, God's wrath is severe. God's wrath is severe. Would you look at verse 2 with me? Verse 2 through about 4 or 5 for now. This is a declaration of the Lord. Zephaniah the prophet uh, announces God's judgment. I will, the Lord says, I will utterly sweep everything away from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will 
Sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against Jerusalem and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom or Molech, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. We'll stop there. Uh, Let's say it. God's wrath is what? Severe. God's wrath is severe. Here we see in verses 2 through 4 echoes of the flood and creation narrative, don't we? In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world in magnificence and in glory. And here, as the announcement of judgment and wrath is given, you see an undoing of creation. Genesis 1 was the establishment and the building of creation. Zephaniah chapter 1 is the undoing of creation. It is a reversal of the creation order. Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 was the destruction of the world by flood. It was a cleansing of the world because of all the wickedness uh, that mankind represented. And it was God sweeping away and cleansing the world. And here in Zephaniah chapter 1, you have a cleansing once again as the Lord declares judgment and wrath from his throne. It is the creation narrative in reverse. It is the flood narrative repeated. And notice as we zoom the lens in, this is what's scary. Not only is it universal in scope, not only is it worldwide in nature, the the lens zooms in very specifically. And it is against, look at verse 4, it is against Judah and against all the inhabitants of of what? Jerusalem. Now, this is significant because this is a prophet speaking to the covenant people. That is, that they were chosen by God to be representatives of his kingdom, to shine the light of the kingdom of God to the world. The Lord is entering into judgment against his people. Everybody say, whoa, whoa. Peter in the New Testament would say this. He would say that judgment begins with the house of the Lord. That's what Peter would say. And here we have Zephaniah who is speaking out against his own people. Last week you'll have to get the message, but he's a Jewish man, a Jewish prophet, announcing that God's wrath is indeed severe to the Jewish people. He's announcing that the Lord will come in judgment and in wrath against, not against the faithful, Not against those who are indeed walking after truth, but he is going to come in judgment against all the inhabitants who are faithless, who are, that is, biologically they are Jewish, but they are spiritually, have have refused and rejected to follow the Lord. And this is where the wrath is centered against his people who indeed are, number one, idolaters. Look at verse 4. He says that I will cut off from that place the remnant of Baal. Remnant could be translated traces. That, uh, that I will, I will, I'm coming against the people of my, uh, of my city, of Judah and Jerusalem, because of the traces of Baal, or Baal, however you want to say it. You say, well, uh, thankfully that we in America, we don't have, uh, we don't have idols built to Baal. That's, that's good. So we're, we're, we can, we're out of that one, aren't we? 
until, until you realize that Baal worship fundamentally comes down to three critical issues, sex, power, and money. These are the issues that in that culture, Baal was worshipped as, as a god of pleasure and sensuality, as a god of power and authority, as a god of money and wealth. This was that the cornerstone of Baal worship. And because of this idolatry, the Lord's wrath was coming out. And so you take a look at our culture. Could you say that perhaps on street corners all around the world in America that we have problems with God of sex, God of money? money, God of power. Could you say that? I think so. I think Zephaniah would apply. Not only to the idolaters, though, uh, but also to the vacillators. The vacillators. Take a look at verse 5. The judgment is being poured out against those who swear to the Lord and also yet swear by Milcom, or again, Molech. Baal was uh, a, a prevalent god of the foreign countries around them, and also Molech was a foreign god of the Ammonites. And here you have vacillators within the country of Israel at the time, and they were vacillating. They were swearing by. What does that mean to swear by? It means to pledge your authority, sorry, pledge your loyalty. It literally means to seven oneself, seven, the number seven, to promise seven times that you are loyal to something. I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise, and I promise. Cross my heart, help me, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Don't you hate that saying, right? That's what it means to seven oneself. But here you have the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem who are sevening themselves, swearing on oath that they are loyal, and they are doing it to the Lord, and yet, the Scripture says, also to other gods. Aren't you glad that we don't have the gods of Molech in our culture? So this verse doesn't apply to us until you realize that the main issue here is called syncretism. They're pulling a little bit of this religion and a little bit of that religion and a little bit of this truth and a little bit of that truth, and they're saying everybody can arrive at their own truth, and their loyalties were divided. And I think as we look at the culture and the spirit of the culture in America today, I believe that the spirit of the age in America is a syncretistic spirit. It is a very open and welcoming culture that says, you know, kind of make truth what you want, grab a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but by no means is truth singularly focused in the lordship of Jesus Christ in our culture. And so I believe that the spirit of the vacillators is alive and well in America. Wrath is also coming against backsliders. Look at verse 6. If you miss the first two, if you are not an idolater or a vacillator, how about this one? How about a backslider? Those who have turned away, turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. What's going on here and why judgment is coming out from the Lord against his people, against the very house of God, is because of this. Number one, prepare perpetual backsliding, turning away from the Lord. They started well, but they didn't run the race well. They didn't finish it well. And also against prayerlessness. They did not seek the Lord. They did not inquire of the Lord. And so here was people that began the race. They, 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 they had the appearance that they were running the race well, but then they began to turn back and they decided to no longer seek the Lord. They became prayerless backsliders. Take a look at this list again. 
idolaters, vacillators, backsliders. Idolaters who worship sex, money, and power. Vacillators who choose a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and backsliders who turn away from the Lord and are perpetually walking away from him and not seeking him. Go down that list real quick and just say, does this list at all apply to me in the course of my lifetime? I go down the list and I say, have I been an idolater in my life? Check. Have I at times been guilty of, have I at times backslidden and not inquired of the Lord in my prayer list? I say, yes, check, check, check. This is a problem. As it pertains to the backsliders, I, I mentioned last week that Jeremiah the prophet was speaking to the, he was prophesying to the country of Israel the very same time as Zephaniah. And one of the main themes in Jeremiah is addressing the issue of perpetual backsliding, that people were going backwards, not forward. You're always going backward, Jeremiah says. You're always falling away from the Lord. Isn't that true? Don't you feel that in your own heart? That, that prone to wander, right? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is one of the big concerns, if I could just stop for just this moment. This is one of the big concerns of our pastors for the congregation of New Hope. This is one of the main prayer themes that my wife and I prayed about both yesterday and this morning on our way to church. People that shrink away from following the Lord. People that at one time have an appearance of having prayed and surrendered their life to Christ, but then somehow, someway, either they take up an offense in their heart or they begin to move away from local fellowship and then all of a sudden they become unchurched or dechurched and they fall away from the Lord. Here's a verse out of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 24. We read this this past week as a congregation. It says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. What a powerful verse. And as it pertains to backsliding, uh, this is what I want to call you to in, a, in an, a very early action step. Would you consider this one fact? As a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps there's somebody in your life who has been outside of fellowship with the Lord for a long time, perhaps weeks or months or even years, and you know that person. You used to sit with them in worship, you used to gather together in the assembly, but you know that they haven't been around, that they have begun to drift and shrink away from following the Lord. Here, would you do this for me? Would you make it a point this week to rescue those would you make it a point to at least reach out and attempt to bring that person back? Would you consider doing that? Anybody? A few of you? I'm asking you. I did it yesterday. It didn't succeed, but I tried. Reaching out to bring back into fellowship somebody who has wandered and drifted. The Lord's judgment is severe, and we are guilty, certainly, of all of these things. Number two, it is also deserved. Verse 7 says this, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. 
what is this day of the Lord? Let's not presume that everybody knows what this is. Uh, The day of the Lord is uh, probably referring most specifically as an individual point in time to the future when God bundles the wicked together and punishes them. In fact, the idea of punishing is going to come up three times in in this next section of Scripture. And punish means to visit with hostile intent. It means to visit with hostile intent. And so most specifically, it's that future day, which is still even future to us, that final day when God's wrath is poured out. Jesus speaks of it in Matthew and chapter, uh, Matthew and Luke and, and Mark. Uh, John speaks of it in Revelation. Uh, the, the apostles speak of the day of the Lord. So most specifically, it is a future day of judgment when the Lord does come and indeed cleanses the world of all wickedness and unrighteousness. However, it also seems to have little echoes and reverberations in history as God's wrath flares for a moment. Do you know that God is slow to anger? You know this? He's slow to anger. However, he does get angry. You guys know this. And there are moments in history where the wrath of God seems to flare and, and, and wrath would be this. It would be controlled passion. It's not your wrath or mine. How many here have ever had wrath and you break out and you say things that later you regret, right? Anyone? This wrath is very controlled and it's very focused. And there seems to be echoes and reverberations in history. And in the Old Testament and in the Scripture, when the Lord's wrath strikes into the world, listen, it is always represented in the Scripture as both right and just. It is always represented that the the God of mercy, when he lashes out in wrath, it is both right and it is just. It is severe and it is deserved by those that it falls upon. And so here we have Zephaniah seeming to speak out about a future day of the Lord, which also at times seems to flare at different occasions as the Lord deals with sin in his people. Why is the Lord's wrath against his people? What are the trademarks of it? Well, here they are. How about this? How about corruption? Corruption. Verse 8, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the, what was it say? The officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Now, this is kind of interesting. It is a day when God deals with corrupt leaders. Last week, we said leadership has consequences, didn't we? Leadership has consequences. And here is God's wrath being poured out upon the corruption of leadership that had opposed God and his regulations, that had shook a fist at God and in his face and tried to cast off his bonds. This is the Lord striking out in vengeance against all the corruption of his people. And notice it is against his leaders who are dressed in, what does it say? (laughs) In foreign attire. Okay, question. Uh, This uh, suit coat was made in Vietnam. Am I in trouble? I mean, what is wrong with wearing stuff made in China, right? Or made in 
Is that what he's talking about? Made in a foreign place? No. He's talking about the people of God who are bringing onto themselves foreign articles and are are basically imitating the evil of the world. The, The outside is representative of the inside. In other words, you could say it like this. How many of you recognize at times that based on how somebody dresses, you can tell a little bit about their character? Sometimes that's true. You see somebody walking, how they're dressed, and this is what's going on. It's not that their external clothing was made in China or made in Vietnam. It was the fact that they were imitating the world. And the people of God were not to be imitators of the world. And First John, or rather Third John will say this, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. And so the Lord here in his wrath is breaking out against the corruption of leaders who are corrupt and vile and arrogant and proud and boastful. Notice also against crookedness, crookedness in its followers. Verse 9 says this, And on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Notice again that leadership has consequences. Verse 8, it was judgment and wrath against the leadership that was corrupt in all ways. And now that corruption has filtered down to who? To the servants, to those who are in their houses of their masters. And they are zealous to do evil. They are filling their master's house with corruption and lies and deceit and, 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 and plunder and, and, and corruption and crookedness in all of their ways. How to understand this? How about this illustration? It's like Downton Abbey. How many like Downton Abbey? I love Downton Abbey. But do you realize that every single character in that is corrupt? Every single one. From the top to the bottom, from the rich to the poor, everyone is conniving and deceitful and immoral. There's all sorts of things. And that's verse 8 and verse 9, that the Lord's wrath bursts out against those who are corrupt in leadership and those who are crooked as they are following and zealous to do evil and also against complacency. This one gets me. Verse 12, take a look at it. At that time, I, this is the Lord, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will, I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, ah, Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Complacency. The word literally means this. It's actually a word picture. It means a thickening of the dregs. Okay, that doesn't help, Craig. What does that mean? In that culture, unfiltered wine, it, it would be unfiltered. And if you, let wet, uh, if you let wine sit and you didn't touch it, it would thicken. And all of the sediment would be sludge. The, the, the best analogy would be this. It would be like sludge at the bottom of the coffee pot. It would be that, that nasty mixture that's worthless because it sits. And that's why it's rendered complacent. It's people that sit still. How many know if I sat like this for a long time, it would... Complacent. Apathy. You become worthless. Sluggard but really apathy. 
And it's a spirit of agnosticism. Perhaps you're an agnostic. We welcome you today to the house of the Lord. But perhaps you come with that spirit. Eh, I don't think the Lord, yeah, if he exists, maybe he won't do evil. Maybe he'll do good. I don't know. And the Lord's wrath. It's people who sit in neutral. My kids were wondering what the shifter was uh, in my car, and, and, and they're young enough. Some of them are young enough. What's that? What's that? What is the end, Dad? What's the end? Well, the end is neutral. So I put it in neutral. We're at a stoplight at uh, uh, South Air, or, uh, uh, Garfield and Hammond. So we're at the stoplight. I put it in neutral, and, and then I showed them. By revving on the engine, you don't go anywhere. And that's the picture. It's people that sit. And they're apathetic, complacent, they sit. And so because they don't think that the Lord will really do anything good or bad, it is no wonder that their focus in life is on possessions, on property, and on pleasure. And so guess what the Lord goes after to get their attention? He goes after their possessions, their property, and their pleasure. Look at verse 13. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses shall be laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. In other words, the Lord in his mercy, get this, the Lord in his mercy seeks to get their attention by taking away the idols of their life so that they have nowhere else to go but look up and say, Lord, forgive me. But it takes his wrath to do that. His wrath and his mercy are always acting synonymously, seeking to draw us back to the Lord. In fact, Zephaniah chapter 1, in the midst of all of the wrath, has one main purpose, and it comes out in chapter 2 when he says, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek him, seek him, seek him, turn to him. It's called to awaken our hearts and awaken our love for him. Perhaps most significant are the two verses that I skipped, and I skipped them intentionally for now. Perhaps most significant is the location of this judgment, okay? Verse 10 and 11 are fascinating. Look at verse 10 and 11. This is great. It says this, On that day declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. Hmm, what? What? What is that? Everybody say, what? Yeah, you should. I'm telling you, when you read scripture, there should be verses that are like, What? Are there any more inconsequential verses in all the scriptures? You would think so. Until you realize the location of these. The fish gate. Zephaniah says there's going to be a whale at the fish gate. The fish gate is on the north side of the city. It's next to the sheep gate. So you have a sheep gate comes in from the north and the fish gate that comes in from the north. Why is it called the fish gate? Because of its location near the fish market. <laughs> Go figure. It's like Leland, right? Fish, the fish gate. 
uh, located next to the fish gate, some, uh, most commentators say, is located the second quarter. Uh, even today in Jerusalem, it's separated into quarters, and so it's a reference, the second quarter is, to a district in the city. Perhaps it was a business district or something, but it was located on a hill. And as for this issue of whale inhabitants of the mortar, there's two opinions on this, but one suggests that it was a significant business district, think Wall Street, where all the busyness and activity, which was located near a rock quarry, and some also suggest that it's not a specific location, but it could be referring to the idea of pounding, smashing, or shattering. Now it gets a little more significant. Because Zephaniah is writing 600 some odd years before the life of Jesus Christ and before his crucifixion. And who would guess that 600 plus years later that Jesus Christ, the fisher of men, would be marched on the Via Dolorosa by or through the fish gate, through the second quarter, up to a hill in the midst of all the busyness and activity. He would be crucified in a rock quarry and it was there that a cry and a wail would go out. It is finished. And when he cried that, the Hills shook with an earthquake. What was happening that day? It was the wrath of God being poured out upon Christ, and it was Zephaniah 1 being fulfilled. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, and every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I stand. This is powerful. There is no word of scripture that falls to the ground. The Lord is faithful in this. God's wrath is severe. And it is deserved. And it deserves one proper response. Go back to verse (laughs) 7. The one response. This verse is a memory verse. You want a memory verse out of chapter 1? Here it is, verse 7. He says, be what? Silent before the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. There's only one proper response to this. (laughs) I'm, let me, I'm going to talk to myself right now, so don't get offended. Okay, ready? Shut your mouth. Don't be arrogant or prideful. Stand in awe of this great God. Literally, the word is this. It's one word in the Hebrew. It's hush. You want an acronym for hush? Here it is. Holy, unspoken, silent honor. Holy, unspoken, silent honor. The wrath is severe, it's deserved, so point three. So how can we escape? How can we escape this? Look at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. In other words, we are on a crash course with this day. There will be a day that we, every one of us, you will have, you will have FaceTime directly with the Lord. You will have one-on-one FaceTime with the God of the universe. One commentator says about that great day, that day will be swift, it will be soon, and it will be complete. How can we escape this day? Well, here's some things we can't do. Number one, Uh, You can't uh, work your way out, uh, or I put in my notes, uh, you can't wiggle your way out. You can't wiggle your way out of this one. Look at verse 15. 
A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty inhabitants. There is no way that we can wiggle out of that day. You cannot do it, friend. You can't get out. Do you see how comprehensive and widespread this is? It is a day of wrath. It is a day of judgment against all the people who are unfaithful, who have not come to the Lord and recognized his lordship. One commentator puts it like this. Uh, you'll see a list on the screen, but he puts it like this, that, that we have emotional distress and anguish. You have physical ruin and devastation. It's psychological, darkness and gloom, cosmic clouds and thick darkness, and militarily, there's a trumpet blast, which is rendered shofar. That's the word in Hebrew. There's a shofar and military blast and a battle cry. You cannot wiggle your way out. Well, hi, hi, Pastor Craig, how about, can we find our way out? Everybody say, can we find our way out? Uh, Well, no, you can't find your way out. Okay, that's point two. You can't find your way out. Verse 17, look at it. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. You can't find your, you're blind. You can't see, you can't find your way out. And why does this happen? Because they have sinned against the Lord. That's the cause of this. The cause of wrath is I have sinned. Isn't that true? You have sinned against the Lord. Separation between me and a holy God of the universe. We have sinned against the Lord. Do you remember the thief on the cross? He, he, he was there next to Christ that day. He was talking to the other thief who was, who was boasting and bragging and he was reviling Christ. And the thief on the cross says, we are receiving in ourselves the due punishment of our crimes. But this man has what? He's done nothing wrong. He recognized this is, this is what is due us. And this is Zephaniah. It's because we've sinned against the Lord. Proverbs chapter 20, who can say, I have made my heart clean. I have cleansed myself from all sin. Who can say that? Well, you say, well, Pastor Craig, can I, can, can I buy my way out? Everybody say, can I buy my way out? Well, no, that's a stupid question. <laughs> Verse 18, you can't buy, it's serious? Look at this. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Money can buy you a lot of things, can it? I mean, money can buy so much in this world. In fact, if you're corrupt and you have a lot of money, money can even purchase, in some cases, getting out of trouble in this world. But money can solve no problems on the day of judgment. Proverbs chapter 11, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. This is bad news. I told you Zephaniah 1 was a tale of two themes. It is judgment. And the bad news is you can't wiggle your way out of this. You can't find your way out. You can't buy your way out. And all of that is the black cloth. And it is there in the midst of that bad news that we set the diamond 
who was crucified on that hill, who wailed, it is finished, who absorbed in his body the very wrath of God that was intended for me, taking upon himself the wrath and the judgment of God, God himself saving us from God's wrath. That's powerful. It is the diamond of that grace that Romans 5, again, comes into light. Romans 5, which says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that good news? I can't wiggle my way out. I can't work my way out. I can't find my way out. I can't buy my way out, but I can be carried out. Richard Sibbs in 1600s, he's a Puritan. In the 1600s, Richard Sibbs says this, the law is sweetened by the gospel and it becomes delightful. (laughs) The law is sweetened by the gospel and it becomes delightful. When I read Zephaniah 1 now, I I can sit there and I can weep over the fact that I deserve this and then I can be brought to joy that Christ absorbed it for me. It is sweetened by the gospel. That's why we study Zephaniah, because it's real. It's deserved. It's severe. And it was for me. I would receive in myself the due penalty of my sin, but Christ himself took it for me. And because of that, the law is sweetened by the gospel, and Zephaniah 1 becomes delightful to the senses. So what do we do with Zephaniah chapter 1? Well, here's some action steps for you. I have four. In your notes, you only have three, so I'm going to give you a bonus one, all right? Number one, limp no longer. It means to vacillate. Elijah says to the prophets of Baal in one of the great books of Scripture, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. But make up your mind. Limp no longer. High schoolers, junior hires especially, listen, because this was me in high school. And it was 24 years ago this weekend that I got it right with the Lord. Because up until that point, I was 15 vacillating between two opinions. Man, I, was, I would swear by the Lord and I would also live by the world's standards. And 24 years ago this weekend, at a youth retreat, I committed my life to the Lord, to following wholeheartedly for Him. There is nothing joyful, church, about borrowed faith, is there? All of us, if we grew up in the Christian home, we know what it's like to live on borrowed faith. It's borrowed from our parents. But at some point in time, even for you adults, you got to make a decision whether this is something that you're going to totally be all in, committed to, or whether you're going to be half in, half out. You know what they call half in, half out? They call it lukewarm. And you know what the Lord does with lukewarm in Revelation 3? He spits it out of his mouth. You've got to make a decision. Be all in or be all out, but limp no longer. That is a joyless existence. Wander no more. Number two, wander no more. This would be for you. Maybe you're a backslider. Maybe you would say, I'm a drifter. Maybe you would say, I'm complacent. I'm a neutral. I'm imitating evil. You know, the very antidote for backsliding is doing the exact opposite of verse 6. Verse 6 says that you have turned away from the Lord and you have drifted and you no longer inquire of him. You no longer seek him. The antidote is doing the exact opposite. It is, indeed, it is seeking the Lord, it is pursuing him, it is inquiring of the Lord, and it is turning your eyes back to him. And if you're here today and you're saying, you know, Craig, I'm a drifter, 
I'm a backslider. Today would be a great day to recommit that heart of yours to the Lord. To say, Lord, I want to pursue you with fervency and focus and direction. And I don't want to be distracted by possessions or property or pleasure anymore. I want my eyes to be fixed on you. Wander no more. Number three, leave no trace. Leave no trace. It's a hiking term. Those of you who hike know exactly what it means. Leave no trace. Here we are talking about the traces of Baal. The traces of, of, of pleasure idols and power idols and money idols. And the Lord would say, leave no trace. Uh, he, he, he goes and he attacks it in, in the lives of his people. He says, I'm after those traces of Baal that exist and they should be cut out of your life. Leave no trace. America, I was thinking about this, that America could be said that the church in America, generally speaking, is a lot like the church of Thyatira, Thyatira in the book of Revelation. They were commended for several things. They were commended for their good works. They were commended for their love and for their faith. But the Lord says, I have this against you. You have tolerated the spirit of Jezebel. And Jezebel could be put right up there with Baal. It is allowing immorality and pleasure to be your God. And if you're a believer, a follower of this great king of the universe, and you have traces of Baal in your life, I would just ask, what are the traces of Baal or the traces of Jezebel that need to be addressed, that need to be looked at head on and cut out of your life? Where are those traces? And number four, this is a bonus and a tag on, weep and then weep no more. James chapter 4 says this, and this passage of Scripture is targeted directly to the non-believer who is perhaps arrogant or prideful or agnostic or apathetic. This would be targeted to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Read the rest of it with me. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Zephaniah 1 would call us to weep. That is, if you are apathetic and agnostic and atheist. Listen, my atheist friend, if you are here today and you have a drug problem, that is, you were drug here, right? <laughs> you were drug here, or agnostic, you, were, you got a drug problem, you were drug here, and, and you came in and you're thinking, well, God's not really going to do this. Listen, 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 we got a big problem. And it's because we have sinned against the Lord. And it's a problem that is severe and it's deserved. And it requires an action to turn back to the Lord. Recognize it, admit it, confess it, and then turn and seek him wholeheartedly and confess him as Lord of your life and Savior of the universe. Have you done that? That's the starting point. Asking the Lord to shine his grace upon us. Would you bow your heads? We're going to pray now. Uh, you in the Lord, make an action step right now. Commit your way to the Lord. Why don't you do this? Seven yourself to the Lord. <laughs> Seven yourself. Swear to him. That is, commit your way to him. That's what I'm talking about. Committing your way to the Lord. Let me pray with you. Our Father, I pray for those of us who have vacillated. Lord, I put myself in that category. And right now, Lord, for any vacillator, any fellow limper in life, 
I pray that we would limp no longer, that we would make up our mind today that you are Lord and we're going to follow you. Lord, I pray for my fellow backsliders because I'm there. I have turned away from you. I have not inquired of you as I ought. And I pray, Lord, for my fellow backsliders, Lord, that we would turn our attention to you. Lord, I pray for those who have traces of Baal in their life. Lord, I'm in that camp. I need your pruning work. You've called me to live a life that glorifies you, and sometimes I don't, and I have things in my possessions that I constantly need to rid out of my home. I pray, Lord, for those who have traces of Baal, that all of us together would purify our homes, cleanse our lives. And Lord, I pray for the agnostic friend of mine here and the atheist friend and those who think that you're not going to do anything. They treat you inconsequentially. Lord, I've, I've done that. And we need your help, Lord. I pray that by your spirit that you would awaken our hearts, that you would turn our eyes to you, that we would recognize that we've got a big problem. We can't work our way out. We can't find our way out. We can't buy our way out. But Lord, that by your grace that you will carry us. So Lord, from Psalm 67 and from the words of the song, would you shine your grace 